whenever. Okay. <clears throat> hey, it's Catherine. And John. And before we get started, we just wanted to ask you a favor. This show wouldn't be possible without your help. There are countless artists and writers that put in their work every week to make this show possible, but we're all paying out of pocket to keep the show afloat. If you like what you're hearing, we'd like you to show us. On our webpage, dirty-spoon.com, you can find our Patreon. It's a subscription service that lets you donate to us, and in return, we give you things! We give you things. So if you sign up to support us right now, we're going to send you each new episode of the show as it's released. We're going to send you bonus interviews, bonus stories. We're even going to throw in swag, like stickers, stickers! t-shirts, t-shirts, prints of original artwork, yeah! and other stuff. So, yeah. Okay. All right, John. I think that they got it. I hope they did. Please, y'all, just keep this thing going. Go to the link, dirty-spoon.com. Share it. Donate. Please help us out. Here's the show. <laughs> From 103.7 WPVMLP in Asheville, you're listening to the Dirty Spoon Radio Hour. I'm Catherine Campbell. And I'm Jonathan Ammons. Welcome back to season two. Yay! We're doing this a bit differently to kick off the second season. Whereas we normally bring you a variety of stories on a variety of topics every month, today we're going to start part one of a two-part series telling you one story. A story we find particularly pertinent today. Back in February of 2016, during the heat of the primaries, I took a trip down to Miami. Immigration was the hot topic of the debates, and it seemed to be all anyone was talking about. So I decided to go to the American city with the largest number of immigrants in the United States, the Magic City. We initially published this story back in 2016, but as the immigration debate continues to escalate in this country, it seems even more apropos than when we initially printed it. So today, we present to you part one of John's Miami, a look at one of the most important cities in America. But first, here's Mercedes Payon. Cool.
to a land that knows no winter. The land where the sun reigns. Greater Miami, Dade County. Sometimes you just wash up on shore. There's no plan. There's no itinerary. There's not even a stated goal or mission. You just suddenly find yourself there, on white sand beaches, looking out in an ocean of teal blue water. It's a little bleary because of those rum shots at the bar, but you can still make out the skyscrapers on the horizon. It's February, but here you are, having abandoned the snowdrifts of your home just days before, 
now with your toes in the sand and the strange sense of being. What is the opposite of a sense of purpose? Miami is a huge city, over five and a half million people stacked in high-rises, cobbled within apartment complexes, or sprawled along the expansive towns on the outskirts of the city and islands. In those sprawls, those stretches of densely trafficked streets, you'll find a different America than anywhere else in the mainland. Beginning in the 1950s, Miami started to see a wave of migration. Up until that point, it predominantly was a city of army brats and retirees. In 1950, there were more 172,000 residents. New York City had over 7 million by that same year. But revolutions and political and societal turmoil in the clear blue waters to the south were beginning to change the cultural and physical landscape of Miami. And by 2012, there were more than 1.2 million Cubans living in the city. That is to say, a 70% increase since 1960. The current population is over 5 million people in 6,000 square miles. Miami eventually earned the nickname The Magic City because of its Jack and the Beanstalk-like growth. It is a place where it has not been uncommon to hear entire city council debates conducted in Spanish, where every mayor since David Kennedy in 1970 and again in 1973 had learned Spanish as their first language and all of whom were born outside the U.S., either in Puerto Rico or Cuba. In fact, the city's current mayor, Thomas Reglado, was born in Cuba and smuggled into the U.S. at the age of 14 through Operation Peter Pan, a mass exodus of Cuban children in the early 1960s, in which 14,000 children were brought into the U.S. Understandably, there is a sense of discontent among the exiles residing in Miami some of whom have seen firsthand the absolute horrors of fascism, the antipathy of a corporate structure grown to mammoth proportions, grinding its poorest under the wheel of progress and greed. Still others have seen the opposite side of that spectrum, a communist regime insistent on absolute control and resulting in the starvation of the very people it set out to liberate, corrupted by that same greed. Miami is a city of people who have been or who are inalienably connected to someone caught at some point in the swing of that pendulum hurled between two extremes. Early on a Tuesday morning, heading down the hustle of 41, we can tell where we are headed based on the line out front, Versailles, a staple of Little Havana. What started as a bakery and cafe to become a culinary icon of an exiled community. At the front of the building, a small outdoor coffee bar specializing in Café Cubano, serving piping hot little caffeine bombs for the hordes of regulars every Sunday morning. We happened to arrive the night of the Iowa caucus, a night when Ted Cruz eked past frontrunner Donald Trump by just under three points. Everyone is talking about it, in Spanish, of course, holding their tiny espresso cups, puffing on cigarettes and waving their arms dramatically. On the corner, sitting on the curb, an older man holds a cup of Diario de los Americas in one hand while stroking his mustache with the other, which also clutches a half-burned cigarette, the ash holding on for dear life at the tip. Ah! He calls out at one point, waving his hand in the air, shaking his head, almost tipping over the cafecito between his feet. NBC Morning News is there to ask patrons their thoughts on the caucus. Did you all watch the Iowa caucus last night? The reporter asks. Are you supporting Ted Cruz? We're Bernie Sanders supporters, says Susie. Oh, you guys aren't from Miami, are you? That answer seemed self-evident. Behind the counter, the women in their green polyester suits, the same uniforms worn by the staff here since 1972, crank out the cafecitos. A couple quick scoops of raw cane sugar into a tiny metal espresso pitcher, and then the inky black coffee. The heat from the dark roast hydrolyzes the sugar and creates a frothy texture. It's silky and velvety. There's a deep flavor before finishing in a toasty sweetness. I've not seen Susie in four years before this trip. I did not know her all that well beforehand. But through the wonders of social media, we've grown to be friends. An artist, designer, and craftsperson, she is skilled in almost all visual mediums. She used to live in Asheville, but relocated to Orlando to be closer to her family. She's also a career restaurant staffer, having worked both front of house and back of house at a myriad of establishments, 
from the Carolinas to Colorado and now Florida. She shares the same belief that I do. Food is the quickest route to the heart of a culture. The dining room at Versailles has not changed in over 30 years. Drop panel ceilings are fixed with massive crystal chandeliers. Bare Formica tables are sidled by metal chairs with faux leather backs. The walls, the chairs, everything is the same shade of green, tan, or gold. Servers wear forest green uniforms with a tan stripe down their legs. The floor managers wear an all-black pantsuit, walkie-talkie and earpiece. At first we thought she was a security guard by the way she stood at the door at attention before waving her hand in the air authoritatively in the direction of the table that she and the voice on the other end of the headset have decided should be the prime place for us to break our fast. The menu is sprawling, selections from the bakery or the kitchen, Cuban toast slathered in butter. It's flaky with a thin, brittle crust on the outside and a pillowy, soft interior, not unlike a baguette in its presentation. But the sharp contrast between the soft interior and that crispy exterior is a defining characteristic which can find no substitution. I'm admittedly not a breakfast eater. To me, a good breakfast is a handful of almonds and a banana. What can I say? Sometimes the pressing nature of my hippie Asheville background sneaks up on me in unexpected ways. But when faced with a menu, like the one at Versailles, it's impossible not to indulge. For me, it is the fried goodies from the bakery. Smashed potatoes stuffed with chili-laden ground beef and flash-fried empanadas stuffed with chicken or beef or pork or cheese or a myriad of other simple, flavorful ingredients. Croquettes de pollo, little crispy, gooey balls of finely ground creamy chicken, and Cuban tamales with the sofrito beef drenching the top of the steamed corn rather than being stuffed. Susie opts for a proper Cuban steak and eggs over easy eggs next to a massive flat breakfast cut steak the size of her head. There's also little triangular polenta cakes and more Cuban toast. At the bakery, old men sit and sip cafecitos, snacking on pastries. There's a line out the door with eager ticket holders awaiting something flaky and sweet. Cuarenta y tres, a voice calls out, and the corresponding ticket holder steps forward. Susie orders a flan to go. But stuffed as we are, we toss it in the car for later. We decide to walk around. One block down from the sprawling mecca of Versailles are the green fields of Woodlawn Acres Cemetery. From the street, it's just another pile of graves. A mix of Latin and Germanic names carved on intricate stones with distinctly Catholic imagery throughout the long yard. But to dig a little deeper is to unearth a history that is a telling picture of a Miami so often misunderstood or damn right forgotten. Carlos Prio Sacaras was once the president of Cuba. In fact, he was the last democratically elected president in the country and the first president to be born in a free Cuba. Known as El Presidente Cordial, Carlos Prio's time in office was hardly a handful of golden years for Cuba. But it was considered to be a time of political freedom and, perhaps, the last time that people's voices could be heard through their votes in the country, where one could freely speak their mind without the threat of persecution. But the sordid scars of embezzlement and corruption under his rule eventually led to rumors of a military coup. With no constitutional basis for resistance, Socaras did nothing. And on March 10, 1952, after four years in office, Carlos Prio, a member of the Cuban Revolutionary Party himself, was overthrown by Fulgencio Batista. It is said that those who live by the sword will inevitably die by it. Perhaps Socaras would agree the same goes for those who live by the constitution or the law. When the men with the weapons give no regard for the law, its service seems to tie its own noose. Having fled just days before elections were scheduled in March of 1952, he lived until 1977, spending those days here in Little Havana. They say that I was a terrible president of Cuba, he once famously remarked. That may be true, but I was the best president Cuba ever had. On a sunny 80-degree day in February, there are fresh flowers and tiny cups of Cuban coffee left as offerings in front of Carlos Prio Sacaras's six-foot concrete headstone here in Woodlawn Cemetery. And just over the crest of the stone, with the red, white, and blue colors of the Cuban flag proudly displayed, 
One can see the mausoleum that holds the ashes of General Gerardo Machado, another Cuban president, deposed in 1933. Carlos Prio himself, as a member of the CRP, had personally assisted in that deposition. But here they rest forever, less than a hundred yards from one another, neither in their home country, both with the same flag to mark their grave. Will you take the pain and live? Or will you die and not have the pain? Matt Klein once asked himself, bullet-ridden on the hillside in France. You know something? I'll take the pain and live. And live he has. Max Club Deuce is an institution in Miami, just a block from the beach and tucked behind a shady stucco wall with bright pink and green neon signs and blacked-out windows. One could be forgiven for mistakenly thinking it was a strip club. In fact, much of the interior design was made to look like one when it was used as a set in the original Miami Vice television series. To say that the place is iconic would be a truly gross understatement. The joint has been doling out booze for a staggering 51 years, and its fearless owner turned 102 in September. Matt Klein's father couldn't afford to send both little Mac and his brother to school. So from a young age, the boy worked as a farmer in East Hampton, Connecticut. When World War II hit, he was deployed to France. Trapped behind enemy lines on a recon mission, Mac says he saw a tank moving in the distance, and before he could take cover, a machine gun bulleted him down. After returning to the States, Mac was advised that a warmer climate would be better for his health, and in the mid-40s, he moved, like so many GIs home from the war, to Miami. Rumor has it that he still jogs to work in the morning. The day his daughter was born in 1964, Mac came down to his regular bar, the Club Deuce, to celebrate with some friends, but the door was closed. The owner had died that same day. So Mac bought the bar, to help keep the doors open on what he saw as the everyday working man's bar. This wasn't a place for the tourists, it was a place for the locals, whomever they may be. Go inside and the deuce is as dimly lit as ever. The only light radiates from the pink and green neon reflecting in the mirrors. An old man sits in the corner drinking a Budweiser, a cigarette butt poking through his fingers. It's happy hour, or in this case, six hours of happy which means that with every beverage, one is given a Club Deuce poker chip. That magical token is good for one drink. So a shot and a beer quickly turns into two for me, then four, then six. We start at one in the afternoon. It is complete and utter lunacy. There's a classic photo taken from the exact vantage point where we are sitting. At the time of its taking, it was the height of the Vice era in Miami. At this point, in the 1980s, the Deuce had become known as a haven for the cast-offs of South Beach, people who didn't fit the glamorous and flashy scene of the Ferraris and Camaros to the South. And so it was that Tara, a member of Miami's thriving transvestite community, gave her money to a man at the Deuce bar. The man purportedly held a pet iguana on his shoulder. Tara directed him to take that money and procure some of the beach's famous white powder. When the man returned several days later sans the drugs, as the Miami Times reports, Tara began to beat that man with his own pet iguana, swinging it by the tail and screaming, give me my money, I want my money. Melissa Burley, the bartender working at the Deuce in the 80s, reportedly filled in the rest. Tara put the iguana down. That was the funniest line I ever heard at the Deuce, she told the Times. Club Deuce is the kind of bar that opens at 11 a.m. and does not close until 4 a.m. After hearing the stories, I begin to understand why some folks just don't want to leave when the sun comes up. Stumbling back into the real world can be a bit of a shock. With already dilated and inebriated pupils, the glare of the sun, the roar of the traffic, the excited voices of passerby, all seem to be moving at twice the normal speed. Or is it that I'm moving slower? Each pace, every step seems weightless and aimless, as though taken at a lower state of gravity, to where you float momentarily before glancing the ground. A few blocks up, and it's out onto the beach, where the haze of the rum gives everything an otherworldly glare. It's too bright to be real. It's just too pretty. Teal blue waters ripple white back towards the shore, where massive skyscrapers break up through the dunes. Each corner of each floor on every building 
boasts large wraparound porches, giving the towers a zigzag look on the horizon. As my feet hit the ocean water and the brackish waves catch the linen of my cuffs, I can't help but think, I could really get used to this place. Thank you.
That was John with the first of his multi-part series on Miami, right here on the Dirty Spoon Radio Hour on 103.7 WPVMLP. You can find the entire printed story and artwork by Katrin Doza on our website, dirty-spoon.com. We'll get back to that story in just a minute. The Dirty Spoon Radio Hour is made possible by our underwriter, The Marketplace Restaurant. Founded in 1979 by the pioneering Mark Rosenstein and reimagined by Chef William Disson a decade ago, The Marketplace Restaurant is celebrating its 40th anniversary this year. Asheville's original farm-to-table restaurant, The Marketplace strives to bring you the best of what our region and our farmers have to offer. a.m. from the front porch of our treehouse you can watch the sun rise and see the entire farm crawl back to life. A rooster has been hoarsely and incessantly crowing since 4.30 this morning. 
chickens peck for feed and fluff their feathers at one another, while turkeys, perched atop the roofs of their pens, ring out a call that sounds like tearing paper. The goats stand huddled together, staring vacantly into the distance. The goats sleep standing up, because about now it looks as though they do. The hogs are already nose-deep in the slop, and an emu peeks through the slats of the wooden fence at me, his head bobbing to and fro in curiosity. The cats, of which we'd already noticed a handful, are also being fed. I hadn't realized how many there were until they were all here at once, perched on every railing and bench of the farm's campus, devouring breakfast. Everything, literally everything here, is moving. Earth and Us Farm feels worlds away from the hustle and bustle of the city outside its walls. Just off 79th Street and a stone's throw away from the bustle of North Miami Avenue, the farm has become a fixture in the community of Little Haiti. Since 1978, Ray Chasser has been developing an urban permaculture farm in the heart of what was once considered a very rough neighborhood, and where he and his delightful wife Leslie were kind enough to rent us a little room in their three-story treehouse. According to a 2005 study by the Brookings Institute, there are over 95,000 Haitians living in Miami. Over a third of them earn under $18,000 per year. But there's a good reason for the stark line of poverty among Haitians as compared to the Cuban neighborhoods. In the 1950s, Francois Papadoc de Valier rose to power as the nation's democratically elected president turned maniacal dictator. When you think stereotypical crazy dictator, Papadoc pretty much wrote the book. After enduring partial brain damage during a heart attack, de Valier, who had been elected as a hero after working tirelessly in the medical field to help eradicate several epidemics of contagious diseases, began to become increasingly paranoid and neurotic. Reviving centuries-old voodoo traditions, he declared himself the embodiment of the Haitian spirit Loa, and even began dressing the part. He wore dark glasses to shield his eyes, and yelled in a high-pitched, almost cartoonish voice to imitate the deity. Through the organization of his secret police, the Tonton Makut, Papadoc murdered upwards of 60,000 Haitians and drove thousands more into exile. In the beginning, in the 50s and 60s, many of those in flight were affluent and turned their wings to New York. But in the 80s, at the height of the Duvalier terror, his son succeeded him in 1971, the nation's poorest began to flee, spilling off the island like ants from a trampled nest. The Haitian boat people, as the paper soon termed them, came in with the waves off the coast of Florida. Thousands of families crammed into tiny boats with far too many sinking while attempting to cross the rough waters. In fact, according to the 2012 U.S. Census, 514,000 Haitians have made their way to the United States since 1980 alone. Where do they all go? Most of them come here, to a neighborhood between the Florida East Coast Railways and Interstate 95, a neighborhood once known as Lemon City. In 1972, the first boat of Haitian refugees would land in Miami. That was just one year before Victor Juste, a once prominent businessman in Haiti, forced into exile in the 50s, would leave New York for the warmer climates of Lemon City. It was Juste that saw the natural assemblage of Haitians in the neighborhood and began working to organize the area. One day, it was the headline of an editorial penned by Juste that coined the term Little Haiti. His cultural revolution in Miami began with a record store. Les Cousines began as a way to get Haitian music to those a little homesick for the sounds they remembered from just across the pond. From there, it expanded to a bookstore stocking French and Creole language authors. From there, he generated Miami's first French language newspaper a 25-cent, 12-page weekly rag, and taught English classes in the evenings, helping immigrant families adjust to the new culture. Through his connections with the Catholic Church, Juste and his fellow Haitians helped to build a home for thousands of refugees tossed to the sea by a maniacal dictator and his appointed ruling son. It is important to point out that the days of mass immigration from Haiti directly overlapped with much of the waves of refugees leaving Cuba, 
but these two groups were treated drastically differently. When the mass immigration of the Marielle began in April of 1980, it was almost possible to get those crowded boats confused with those filled with the Haitian boat people of that same year. 125,000 Cubans and 80,000 Haitians braved that risky passage. In direct response to the waves of immigration, President Jimmy Carter created the Cuban-Haitian Entrance Status Pending category of classification, allowing refugees to quickly and safely situate themselves in the United States and work out the kinks later. In 1981, however, President Reagan decided to take a different approach. He ordered the Coast Guard to return any Haitian boat seized in the waters between the island nation and Florida. Only 28 of 25,000 Haitian applicants for asylum were granted during his administration, compared to 10,000 Cuban application approvals. The situation became increasingly worse over the following administrations. In 1992, over 10,000 Haitians attempted another mass migration, all turned away by President Bill Clinton. Through his presidency, George W. Bush managed the relocation of an additional 37,000 Haitian migrants that followed over the years to the U.S.-maintained prison at Guantanamo Bay. Despite the death tolls, Bush insisted that there was no record of human rights abuse in Haiti, and that the U.S. could therefore not accept migrants from the nation. From the plain metal chairs and white tile floors of Chez La Bebe on Northeast 54th Street, you see a glimpse of this other side of Miami. A slightly inebriated man in a ripped hoodie, sweatshirt, and cut-off gloves dramatically gestures us into the sparse eatery, mumbling something in Creole. It looks as though everyone arrived here by themselves. Most are waiting for carryout. And after being quietly and ominously observed by everyone in the joint, Susie decides to do the same. There's no music, only the sound of a TV droning around the corner. It's early, but it's still dark. Outside, a police cruiser slowly crawls by, his spotlight coming through the recesses and alleyways. Inside, there's a line formed in front of the counter. It's a simple, humble space with a menu hung on the wall, mostly consisting of a meat, rice, and beans plantains, and a salad. Opened in 1984, Chez Bebe has become a staple of Haitian cuisine in the neighborhood. Chef Delia Jean has been behind the grill for decades, slinging good, cheap food. Griot is the staple around here. Scotch bonnet fried chunks of pork with the bone still in, allowing the marrow to stew in the meat. There's a spicy slaw and a red sauce that packs a punch on the side. Judging from the cheap prices, we order a lot. Fried turkey and griot with the sides. When our order comes, we are shocked to find massive boxes packed to the gills. Pounds and pounds of food, all for under $20. As we get up to leave, a young man in a white sweater beckons me to his table. I am a mystic, he claims with a thick accent. Let me show you. I look at Susie, who is standing outside being heckled by the doorman. I move towards her. Another man stands on the corner and watches both of us from the distance. It is clear that it is we who are out of place here, the strangers in a land that may as well be another country. I open door for you, now you grease me, mumbles the doorman. I pull another crinkled dollar bill from my pocket and stuff it in his palm. You're a good man, he slurs before drifting back into a blend of French and Creole. On the short walk back to the car, another police car passes, its spotlight drifting across the sidewalks. While I was warned by multiple locals before my trip that Little Haiti was a rough area, it is important to point out that the neighborhood, while still holding one of the highest crime rates in Miami, is drastically changing. And while some of that change is coming from gentrification, much of that change is coming from within. Neighbors and longtime residents continuously improve on a community of great pride and much history. You see it in the beautiful murals on the stores, by the kind people on every corner, and by the remarkably kept nature of each borough and neighborhood. Back at the farm, we sit down in the outdoor kitchen hut. We open the boxes of food. The griot and the turkey are unbelievably flavorful and tender, with little crispy hints of char around the corners. 
The beans and rice are generously seasoned, and the plantains lend sweet repose from the onslaught of savory fats. A white cat, riddled with mange, spots us and decides to join us for our feast, ostentatiously poking his nose directly into our dinner. Susie deftly adopts a protective stance, wrapping an arm around a box to elbow out the prying feline. And it becomes a constant act of nudging its whiskers out of the box, taking a bite, and boxing out the feline again. Relentless. Absolutely relentless. Eventually, we start leaving tiny pieces of pork around the edge of the counter to lure it away. But that only proves to strengthen the little bastard's resolve. This goes on for the entirety of the dinner. I hope this cat doesn't die from pork intake, I say. I'm pretty sure these people are vegan. It's only 8 p.m., but the farm is silent. The chickens are already asleep in their coop, the pigs all cuddled together, alternating nose to tail. One of them is even snoring, his fat jowls flapping with each huff and puff. When Ray purchased this land to build his farm in 1978, he paid $35,000 for a quarter-acre portion. He pieced it together, buying another quarter acre each year until 1986, when he'd successfully acquired two acres and a half of the city block. It was the gumbo limbos here that sold me, he once told the Biscayne Times. At night, in the breeze, you can hear their leaves rustle in the arms of the massive branches that canopy above the farm. During the day, Earthiness is open to the public. They often host field trips, drum circles, and potluck dinners. They've held fireworks and concerts, and they teach school children about the wonders of medicinal herbs and how to identify them. Often in urban environments, it becomes crucial to connect children back with the roots of where their food originates. When you're surrounded by enough concrete and cinder blocks, fruit begins to seem like something that comes out of a refrigerator, not the branches of a tree. And meat can seem like something that's always been encased in plastic wrap. To see the little piggies, to get to pet the goats, it lends a perspective on where that griot actually comes from. After dinner, back in our cozy treehouse, Susie and I are finishing off a bottle of wine when I decide to put on a talking head song, the noodling synth line of which has been running through my head since I landed in Florida. Home, it's where I want to be, pick me up and turn me round. I feel numb, I burn with a weak heart, I guess I must be having fun. Spend enough time on the road and you develop a strange sense of homesickness that breeds in you even when you are sitting on your own front porch. A longing for places you have not seen in years or perhaps only briefly encountered. As Susie drifts off to sleep, I slip out onto the porch to sit in a light breeze rustling through the palms, the lyrics reverberating in my head. Home is where I want to be, but I guess I'm already there. I come home, she lifted up her wings. I guess that this must be the place. I can't tell one from another, did I find you or you find me? There was a time, before we were born, if someone asks, this is where I'll be. There are places that immediately feel right, corners that just simply fit. And there, with the salt breeze in the air, the vague scent of chicken the shanty shacks, tree houses, and cabins glowing in the lamplight. It feels like home. I can hear Susie breathing inside. I can hear pigs snoring, crickets, and the distant lull of traffic. And I think to myself, this must be the place.
The Dairy Spoon Radio Hour is made possible by The Marketplace Restaurant, celebrating 40 years as Asheville's original farm-to-table restaurant. Founded in 1979, The Marketplace Restaurant has always had the mission of bringing Asheville the best the region has to offer from our own backyard, farmed by our neighbors. The Dirty Spoon Radio Hour is a production of Dirty Spoon Media, copyright 2019. All of the text from our stories is available on our website, dirty-spoon.com. There, you can also catch up on past episodes, as well as subscribe to the show and help us keep going through our Patreon. The incredible artwork on that website is by Katrin Doza, Corinne Pease, Kelly Minear, Garnett Fisher, Paul Choi, and Marianne Papineau. Music in this episode by Pausa, the Chillum Trio, Black Mighty Orchestra, DJ Gige, Kutma, Fortran, Ben Salisbury and Jeff Barrow, Balloon, Toro Imoa, Shancha Via Cerquito, Nimor Jean-Baptiste, Sarah Devachi, Gary French, Wild Bell, and the Talking Heads. Catherine Campbell is our editor-at-large, sources our stories, and handles our website and marketing. Jonathan Ammons is our editor-in-chief, handles the music selection, production, recording, audio editing, and writes some of the original music. Tune in for part two of Miami next month on the Dirty Spoon Radio Hour right here on 103.7 WPVMLP Asheville. to our show yet? You know, you can find it on iTunes, Google Play, TuneIn, SoundCloud, or just about anywhere else that you can get your podcasts. But in addition to that, we'd love it if you could do us one more favor. Please, 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 for the love of dumplings, rate us and share our show. The rating helps us show up easier when people search for us, But you sharing it draws more listeners than anything else that you could possibly do for us. So please, if you like what you're hearing, rate us on iTunes and share the link with one friend. Thank you.